ticking. Does that mean it? Oh, I see. There it is. I was waiting for the red light to come on. Silly me. There we go. It's working. Technology and me are not very friendly. I'm a dinosaur. All right. Well, those remarks didn't need to be recorded anyway, so we can get down to get down to business. The Lord knows. All right, first Peter chapter four, one through six. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I'm reading from the ESV right now. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Okay, I'm going to close this. I have uh, my text printed out and it gives me a little more room. And I used to tease Pastor Doran that he had the smallest pulpit, but this one's just a little smaller than that one. <laughs> so, yeah, you can just put that there. there you go. Believe me, I have the Bible verses printed here. So, I am preaching from the Bible. It's very important. All right, the, the title of the message is The Mandate for Spiritual Warriors. Dr. Albert Schweitzer thought that those who suffer for religious causes do so because of blind naivete or they are simply misguided visionaries. Regarding Christ, Schweitzer said that Jesus actually never saw the sufferings of the cross coming until it was too late. And this is what he says, and I quote, This is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refused to turn, and he throws himself upon the wheel. Then it does turn, and it crushes Jesus. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man, who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose, is hanging upon the cross still. That is his victory. That is his reign. You see the cynicism of Schweitzer in that. Well, the Heavenly Father has a completely different view of this. We're told in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Father to crush Christ. Why? So that Christ could taste death for every man. And it was God the Father that raised Christ from the dead to validate the claims that Jesus Christ made regarding His person and His mission. So there was no naivete with Christ. Jesus said this, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own will. 
So, God had ordained before the foundation of the world that this one and only Son would enter the world, virgin-born, live a miraculously sinless life, knowingly go to the cross, suffer, and then rise again on the third day to be our once-for-all sufficient sin-bearer, and then rise again from the dead. So, the cross was no mere accident. It wasn't simply a miscarriage of human justice. According to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, it was part of the having been fixed will of God. So the only misguided visionary in this story is actually Albert Schweitzer himself, who now for decades rehearses in his memory the blasphemous words that he once wrote as he suffers eternally in God's eternal death house because he unwittingly laid hold of the wheel of hell, did Schweitzer. And now, Schweitzer cannot free himself from that wheel in death. So for all eternity, that wheel of eternal death and separation from God has been spinning without ceasing. And frankly, this is true for all lost humanity who reject the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and blaspheme the one true and living God who is holy, just, and good. Well, all this lays out for us is that the suffering of Christ on the cross was a matter of spiritual warfare. Because God knows, and Peter knows, and the readers of 1 Peter know, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. Mark 8, 31. So in this passage, it is the warrior Christ who calls us to strength and to resolve to an unwavering firmness as a soldier who arms himself for spiritual battle. And his central command in this text is found in verse 1, where he says, arm yourselves. That's from the word haplizomai, and it means to arm oneself with. And the reason this word is important is because the noun form of this word is the word that we translate as weapons. So the idea is arm yourself with spiritual weapons. Prepare yourself for spiritual warfare by donning on the armor of God. So how are we to obey this mandate of being a spiritual warrior? Number one, we are to resolve to think like a spiritual warrior. In other words, if you and I are going to be a spiritual warrior, we actually have to think like a spiritual warrior. Notice with me in verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So when he tells us to arm ourselves, he says arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. So you and I have to become men and women of resolve. Unbelievers viewed Christians as killjoys. They viewed Christians in those days as living gloomy lives, devoid of pleasure, particularly the pleasures of Roman entertainment, including the live risque performances of the Roman theater, uh, the blood and gore of the Colosseum. They had an indulgent temperament as a society. They had the glorification of sex outside of marriage, drinking gluttonous events. They had the vomitoriums in the Herculean city outside of Pompeii. Pompeii, I've been there. I've seen the vomitoriums. I've seen the people of Pompeii still frozen in their statuary 
judgment from God when Mount Vesuvius had exploded. Been there, seen it, have visibly seen these things. And this is what society was like for them. And so, that being the case, the unbelievers had lives characterized by slander and deceit. And therefore, Christian opposition to these sins, coupled with the fact that they refused to burn incense to the emperor, earned Christians the reputation of being haters of humanity. That's how they were thought of. This is very relevant to our day. It's exactly what is happening today in the Christian church. They were seen to be traitors to the Roman way of life. This is exactly what we are facing today. So whenever Christians are forced by their faith to oppose the cultural values widely held, they will incur the anger of society no matter how graciously we try to hold those values. So he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, meaning the way that Christ thought. And he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So we begin our resolve by thinking clearly with the mental disposition of Jesus Christ. Since Christ suffered in the flesh. When Christ suffered in the flesh, meaning that suffering does lead to victory over the forces of evil, arm yourselves with that same mindset. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ felt the full force of sin's evil, but He gained salvation's fullness for all who trust in Him. And so he says, arm yourself with the same purpose, the same way of thinking, that as Christ has suffered for all to deal with sin and bring you to God, the Christian is to resolve with the same mindset that Jesus had. And this is the right mindset of right moral action. Now notice he says here that the believer who lives his life in this earthly body, the flesh, has demonstrated that he or she is willing to be through or done with sin by choosing obedience even if it means mental or physical persecution. The path of least resistance is not the path for the Christian. Going along with the values and norms and practices acceptable by a pagan society will incur criticism for you and me and condemnation perhaps by unbelieving friends and family. But our willingness to suffer this way demonstrates that we have resolved to be done with sin. So when I had the mindset of Christ that he had when he went to the cross, I've made a resolve, I'm done with sin. We learn obedience by what Christ suffered, Hebrews 5.8. And the perfect tense here, having been done with sin, pepatai, indicates that the resolve to not live sinfully precedes the suffering and persecution. So here you have Christians who are resolving in their minds not to live sinfully. That prepares them for the persecution that they're going to face. I realize today some people prefer a gospel by necessity that rewards us with healthy bodies and bulging wallets. That is not the case. The prosperity gospel teaches that material blessing is the entitled reward of the believer in Christ. The modern gospel expects ease and acceptance from the world. But God says, no, I want you to grow up. I want you to become a man or a woman of resolve. I want you to be prepared. As Paul said, quit ye like men or play the man. And so God wants us to have that kind of resolve. So resolve to think like a spiritual warrior. And you do that by saying, by God's grace, I'm going to be done with sin. And that's going to prepare me 
to take a stand against the values of the society that I live in. Well, we have a second resolve. And the second resolve is resolve to will like a spiritual warrior. So I have to think like Christ if I'm going to obey God's mandate to arm myself. But secondly, I have to will like Christ. I have to determine in my will to do something, to be a spiritual warrior. Notice verse 2, and I read this from NASB. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer toward the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So here he's talking about will. Resolve to live for the will of God and not the lusts of men. A spiritual warrior has both friend and foe. And the foe here is described as the sinful passions of men or the evil desires associated with sinful mankind. And it's contrasted with the singular will of God. So violating the will of God is an act of sinful rebellion. Jesus said, for instance, that the man who hears his words and actually does them, he likens him to a man who builds his life upon a rock, Matthew 7. And the man who hears his word and does not act on them is likened to a foolish man who builds his life on the sand. And eventually his life is destroyed. What we are pictured for us in Matthew 7, which is echoed here, is that we have a fight to the death. And only one combatant will survive, and the opponent will not survive. And that's what he is saying here. Jesus is saying, if any man wills to do my will, the will of the Father, he will know of the doctrine. That means the battle for the Bible is the battle for the human will to commit itself to the will of God. He must resolve not to live the remaining part of his life to the sinful passions associated with the unregenerate human nature. That's why it's called the lusts of men or the passions of men. In fact, it stands right at the beginning of the sentence in the original language and it's emphatic. So he's saying we cannot live for the passions of men. He emphasizes that because these passions war against the soul, 1 Peter chapter 2. Imagine you're playing against an intelligent chess player. I actually had this situation when I was at college. I had a roommate who had one of these electronic chess boards and he was a very good chess player so he invited me to use the electronic chess board and I would make a move and the chess board would automatically respond and I realized after a few moves that the chess board's moves it seemed unrelated to my move. I'd move this piece and it would move something completely unrelated. But what was going on in the computer's mind is that the computer, unlike me, had a strategy. The computer was coming after me. And I realized that this thing has a plan. And I don't know what the plan is. And I was totally defenseless that it wasn't very long before checkmate came upon me. Now imagine you're against a combatant and you're totally unprepared. You have no plan, no preparation, no predisposition to win. Uh, you're going to be in a great deal of trouble. So Peter says here, he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men. That implies that prior to our salvation, we did live according to those human passions, the passions of your former ignorance, as he calls them in chapter 1, verse 14. So he commands us to live the rest of our time to the will of God. And that's the command. You have to resolve to will like a spiritual warrior. Now, I hope you realize that time is a gift from God. 
James compares time to a warm breath on a cold Michigan day, and we've had plenty of those. And it won't be long that time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away that will all be under the sod, each one of us. The point is, God holds us accountable for the time that he gives us. We don't know how much time we have. And so we must live our time for the will of God. Recently, I got a phone call from Pastor Tom Craig, one of the ministerial students from our church, Pastor's Oak Ridge Baptist Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. He was the son of Virginia Craig and Buford Craig. And Tom and I are good friends, wonderful man. He graduated from Bob Jones. He worked at Calvary Baptist Church for many years as an assistant, took Oak Ridge Baptist Church, and built it up slowly for the Lord and has been pastoring there ever since. Tom's 50 years old. has three wonderful daughters, a beautiful wife named Kim. And the reason he called me is that he was diagnosed with incurable pancreatic cancer at 50 years of age and was given about two months to live. And we talked about that. His daughters are all getting married this summer. Two of his daughters are getting married this summer. One daughter's entering college. So here's a young man with a beautiful family, 50 years of age, two daughters getting married, pastoring a wonderful church, and God has chosen to take his life. Our time is in the hand of God. It was so interesting talking to him. He had no self-pity and he had no regrets. No self-pity and no regrets. And I told Tom, I said, Tom, I hope before the Lord calls you home, you'll be able to come up to our church and preach in our pulpit I know a lot of folks would like to hear you preach and you could say goodbye to our church because he's very dearly loved in our church. And he said, well, Mike, if I can, my first obligation is to my family. My second obligation is to my church if I have enough energy. I mean, he's very gaunt. He's lost about 50 pounds in the last few months. And he'll be dead in a few months, if not sooner. So the Bible says... We live the rest of our time to the will of God. How much time is that? We don't know. And God could call us home at 50. He could call us home at 80. I was with August Allen this afternoon, man in my church. Uh, He's been fighting cancer and heart disease for 20 years. Now he's got brain cancer. And he's on hospice care. And he'll be home with the Lord in a matter of weeks. And I talked to August. And he just said, well, Pastor... Amen, glory. That's what he kept saying to me because he's my big amener in church. When he's not there, all my other men wimp out on me. And he just had such an appreciation for the 75 years that the Lord has given him. But he lived his time for the will of God. And that's what he's arguing here. Resolve to do the will of God. And notice that he uses a strong adversative here between the first half and second half of the sentence that between the evil desires of men and the will of God, there is a very strong adversative. The word is Allah. We translate it but, but it's a very strong contrast in the original language. This is suggesting to me that there's no middle ground. There's no large gray area that Christians can comfortably categorize themselves. So his will must be our law, his word, our rule, his life, our example, his spirit, our guide. That brings me to our third point. Resolve to live like a spiritual warrior. So we have to think like a spiritual warrior. 
having the mindset of Christ as he went to the cross. We have to will like a spiritual warrior and to resolve in our hearts to do that which God would have us do, which is his will. But then thirdly, resolve to actually live like a spiritual warrior. In other words, we have to take it to the point of action. So look at me at verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So it's not enough to think differently. We have to will differently. And now we must actually live differently. So he's talking about turning away from a former way of life, the former desires, the sinful passions. And he specifies exactly what he has in mind regarding the will of God. You know, people say to me, Pastor, if I could only know the will of God. The will of God is no secret. It's in God's Word. There is no mystery to the will of God and never has been. Look what the will of God is here. He says in the will of God, and he lists first of all what it isn't. Acts of abandon. The word is esalgeis, meaning any behavior lacking moral constraint. Uh, Particular acts that are either sexual or violent that reflect no moral constraint. So God wants no sexual sin amongst believers. Something Dr. Al Mohler said that really caught my attention. He said, all Christians are saved sexual sinners. I thought that was an interesting statement. And he's absolutely right. All Christians are saved sexual sinners in the sense that there is some level of sexual sin in every believer's life prior to their salvation or in some cases after their salvation. But at various degrees, at various levels, some is simply mental. And certainly on that level, that statement would be a true statement. But the difference is a saved sexual sinner is a sinner who has repented of his or her sexual sin to God. Well, notice here, in our previous life, he says, turning away from Elphegeus, any lacking of moral constraint, whatever that might be. And I'm not here to do a survey of that in your life. Uh, you certainly know what those things are. The point is, those things need to be put in the past. Then he uses a second word. The word is epithumiais, which is the plural word for desire or lust. This means all human impulses that tend toward immorality, including indulgence and acts of self-gratification. So it's an overlap with the first word, but it's an emphasis that this is something Christians turn away from. You know, that's interesting because we live in such an evil day regarding sexual sin today. I mean, you've had an ordinance passed in your community. We had another one passed in Sterling Heights. Troy is the next target where they're going to normalize uh, homosexual behavior. But it won't stop there. I heard a report yesterday on News Radio 76 that a large academic study has been done in England out of their major universities where the professor is arguing now that pedophilia is normal behavior. Normal behavior. This is the next thing coming down the line. You say, well, that's impossible. Well, 40 years ago, we would all have thought that the society endorsing gay marriage was impossible. But in just 20 years, we've seen that happen. It will take another 20 years, but the normalization of pedophilia will also be done. And the seeds are already being planted in the academic community. It'll come over to the academic community us. It'll be picked up by Hollywood. 
The sexualization of children is already going on today. You can go over to Abercrombie and Fitch today, and they have undergarments there for children as young as seven that say words like no angel, party girl, hottie. You can buy them in the stores today. They have pageants for girls as young as five today where girls are being dressed up as if they're 21-year-old provocateurs, being encouraged by their mother and having television shows where this is being praised. This is not an accident, folks. The whole thing is to lower the age of accountability, lower the age of consent, and then to normalize the desire of pedophilia and every daughter and every son will be the potential victim. And there's never been a time when fathers are going to have to protect their daughters and their sons more than today. That's the society we're living in. And that's the society they lived in. Those things were all normal in Roman society. Pedophilia was a norm in pagan Rome. It was Christianity that took these types of pagan lusts and made them unlawful and unacceptable in culture. But prior to Christianity, these things were as normal as we would consider just a man and a woman going out together on a date. They would just see it that way. And so he says, that is not the will of God, turning away from that. In other words, our actions have to turn away from that. And then he uses the next word, drunkenness. A very interesting word for drunkenness. It's what we call a hapax legomena. That's a big word. It means a once written word. Hapax once legomena written. So I call it a hapax for short. So you learned a new word perhaps today. A hapax, all right? Well, what is this word? It's oina flugayas. Oinas is the word for wine. Fluo means to bubble up. It means wine bubbling up. So the picture here is very similar to Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35, where it talks about not looking upon the wine when it is red, when it stirs in the cup. It's the idea of a fully fermented wine that is unmixed, meaning undiluted. Well, in their day, in the worship of Bacchus, the Greek god of wine, and Dionysius, the Roman god of wine, the pagan god of wine, worshipers of these gods would soak themselves fully with fermented, undiluted wine, they would often mix these wines with herbs and spices, and that would actually intensify the intoxicating effects. And that led to drunkenness. So the word drunkenness, aynas flugayas, means to be bubbling up with wine. Now, moderation is a good thing. Moderation in all things good. But I would say that we should have separation from all things harmful. So when we have intoxicants, be it marijuana... Wine, beer, whiskey, gin, um, other recreational drugs that are available. All these things are intoxicants, and they're not good things. And so moderation in all things good, but separation from all things harmful. So moderation in intoxicating beverages is not the cure for drunkenness. It's the cause for drunkenness. I've never seen a person get drunk who wasn't first a moderate drinker. So the command to be sober comes from the Greek word nephalios. And the word to be sober, literally in its etymology, nephalios means to be wineless. And so the idea here is to avoid drunkenness by avoiding wine in its undiluted and in its most powerful state. And that's what they did in their day, absent refrigeration, absent pasteurization that we have today. 
they would dilute their wines regularly to reduce it. Only a barbarian would drink an undiluted wine. Today, we can pasteurize our grapes and grape juice and drink it without any kind of intoxicating influence. So put that behind you. The next word is revelries, kamois. Uh, these were festive gatherings, either private or public. They were usually religious in honor of a god such as Bacchus. Normally, the festivities would parade themselves publicly in the streets and it led to foolishness and wickedness. I saw this on the news yesterday. Uh, they were having, on June the 29th, the gay parade in San Francisco. And there was the mayor of San Francisco leading the parade and there was Nancy Pelosi right out there in the midst of the parade. And everything that was going on there was absolutely wicked and sinful. It's exactly what he's talking about here. Festive gatherings, usually religious in honor of a god, parading themselves publicly in the streets in foolishness and wickedness. Comparable to, let's say, Mardi Gras or maybe a modern-day prom night or typical nightclubs or drunken celebrations after a sporting event. You know, a sporting event is occurring and everybody's in the streets getting drunk, doing violent acts. It's that kind of thing. And so he translates it, revelries. He says, that's not the will of God. But then he uses another interesting word as to what the will of God is not. The next word is patois, or drinking parties. What are these? <laughs> well, these are social drinking at banquets. The term does not imply excess in and of itself. It implies an event that is characterized by drinking. One of the best examples I can think of is my brother, who's not a Christian, invited me to his yacht club. So my wife and I are at the yacht club. It's on Long Island. And we're out there uh, schmoozing with the rich and famous. And so I'm telling everybody there that I'm a Baptist pastor. And that's not going over real well. Conversation sort of coming to a close when I tell people that. Well, actually, it's really a wine tasting event. Long Island is famous for their wines. And they have wineries all down the island. It's good for grapes and such. So you can get free wine from the various winemakers. So everybody's trying to get me to drink wine. And I said, well, no, thank you. Well, why? I said, well, I'm a Christian. And they didn't even understand it. Well, I'm a Catholic. I drink wine. I said, I know. I grew up with Catholic priests, and most of them were drunk. <laughs> so I'm very aware of that. No, I said, I'm a Baptist pastor. We don't drink. Thank you. And uh, so I had a Coke or something else obvious that I wasn't drinking. But I didn't see a lot of people drunk at the event. But the event was characterized by drinking. That's exactly what this word patois means. Again, another hapax legomena. Remember, what's that mean? Once written. It's an event characterized by drinking. And this is the kind of thing that you face. You know, you might go to work and they have a little Christmas party or an office party. And it's an event characterized by drinking. Everybody there is drinking except you. And you're not to participate in the social drinking of that aspect. That's what he's talking about here. And so it's a very, very important word. George Bush, I think it's George W. Bush. I get him mixed up with his father's name at times, but let's call him the young one. Wrote a book called Decisions. It was his autobiography. Do you know what the first chapter in the book is called? Quitting. The book is about decisions. And he said the most important decision he ever made was to quit drinking. He said he never would have been the President of the United States had he not quit drinking. 
And it was after he quit drinking that later on someone introduced him to the gospel and he at least made a profession of faith. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I hope he is. But I don't know that. I've never interviewed him. But I do know that A, he claims it. B, he definitely said that quitting drinking was the most important decision he ever made. It led him to the presidency and it had the potential of destroying him. So I'm sure he was in a lot of events as president where there were patois, events characterized by drinking. But he didn't participate in it because he had made a decision to quit. And the final one is abominable idolatry, which is the root of all the other problems. Because the worship of false gods promoted sexual provocation, drinking, intoxication, uninhibited behavior, etc. It was glandular in nature worshiping these gods, contrary to the law of God and the truth of God, and even contrary to an innate sense of right and wrong. So Peter is saying this, I want you to live like a spiritual warrior. He's talking about actions here. Enough already, he says. Put your sin in the rearview mirror. The time is already past, sufficient to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Be done with it. Church life is not a fraternity party. It's time to clean house regarding what we view and what we participate in. Put it in the rearview mirror. And it brings me to our final point. Resolve to stand like a spiritual warrior. Resolve to stand. So now that we're living right, now we have to stand in that position. Now, in first century polytheistic culture, some religions may have seemed distasteful, but the Judeo-Christian religion had a concept of idolatry that the other religions did not have a concept of. And that made them an object of social persecution because the pagans didn't care if you worshipped Jesus. But they were highly offended that you would call other religions idolatrous. So in that pluralistic age, like our pluralistic age of globalization and multiculturalism, we have a similar ethos in our world that's opposed to the exclusive claims of the gospel of Christ. So in light of that, what does he tell us to do? Verse 4, he says, Stand in spite of social expectations. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. So he says, stand like a spiritual warrior in spite of social expectations. So friends, family, co-workers, neighbors are often surprised when you, know that when you do not join together with them in the same outpouring or overflow of debauchery. The word here is flood. Was their lifestyle is like an overwhelming flood, and they're saying, hey, catch the wave. You know, join in with us. And we all hear the nomenclature. You hear from friends, family, co-workers. Hey, come on. Loosen up. Don't be so uptight. Live a little. You ever hear that? I've heard that my whole life. I grew up in a non-Christian home. My dad was a strong drinking alcoholic. All of our family members were that way. And even as a young Christian, you know, I would get these kinds of come-ons from family. I had to learn even as a young teenage boy to say no to so many things. But I think that strengthened me. I think when I went to the Christian college, I already had a sense of resolve in me based on what I had to do with family. And even being in the public school, I had to take a stand on many issues. So... 
They're surprised when you don't run with them. But notice their surprise turns to malice and their malice to blasphemy. It says, and they malign you. The word is actually blasphemeo. They actually blaspheme you. Your behavior makes them ashamed. Because the true worship of God in personal life and in church is an abomination to unregenerate sinners. Believe it or not, the world feels judged by your godly behavior. And those who are of the world will accuse you of hating humanity and hating life. Uh, professing Christians, by the way, who are temporarily in the world will also ridicule you and malign you. And they usually won't deal with your arguments. They just like to give you a label and put the word ism after the label. We hear that today. You take a stand on anything, either you have an ism or you have an ick. All right? You're phobic. Or you have this ism. And they throw that label at you because the truth is they're maligning you. They're slandering you. They're blasphemeo. They're actually blaspheming you, which means actually they're blaspheming God. So you don't even have to say a word. Your very presence at times is a rebuke to ungodly people. True story. There was an evangelist, fairly well known, and... He was invited to play golf with a professional golfer. R.C. Sproul tells this story. And so the evangelist plays an 18-hole round of golf with this professional golfer. And the professional golfer played terribly. I mean, he was hitting the shots fat. He was shanking the shots, which means it went right off the hosel into the water. Uh, He was uh, hitting it thin. He was hitting it too long, too short. He was missing his putts. The professional golfer for 18 holes played a terrible round of golf. And when the round of golf was over, Sproul being there as a witness to this, the professional golfer turned to R.C. Sproul and he said, I can't stand the fact that that man shoved religion down my throat. Now, Sproul said this. The evangelist never said a word to him about the Bible about the gospel, about God or Jesus. Not a word. He just played. But because the evangelist had such a reputation and had such a godly reputation with this particular golfer or being a holy man, he felt guilty just by being in the man's presence. In fact, Sproul writes this, quote, The very presence of a godly believer is enough to smother the wicked man who flees when no man pursues. Luther was right. The pagan does tremble at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven breathing down his neck. He feels crowded by holiness, even the holiness of an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. Isn't that interesting? So stand in spite of social expectations. Stand like a warrior. Stand, secondly, in view of future judgment. Verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Stand in view of future judgment. The living and the dead speaks of the universal scope of God's future judgment. No exceptions. So we are to stand in light of social expectations, but we ought to stand because we know there's a future judgment coming. And it's universal. No exceptions. You ever have somebody say, well, that's your religion and it's good for you, but not for me. But notice this judgment is universal. It's for the living and the dead. It's a merism, meaning all people. 
that the gospel of God's forgiveness through Christ is the same gospel of God's judgment through Christ? No one is exempted? That the gospel either acquits or condemns? That Christ is either the living stone of the gospel or the stumbling stone? You see, there is no gray area. There are no exceptions here. That's hard to take, isn't it? This afternoon, I was on the phone with Tommy Hacksville, one of our teachers. And his mother died today at 11.30 in the morning. She was rushed to the hospital at 6 a.m. She was dead at 11.30. She was 64 years old. She died of liver disease, cirrhosis of the liver. She was an agnostic. She had only come to our church maybe once. She had come to the school events a few times. But she really kept her distance. She's now dead. There are no exemptions. Whether it's his mother or your mother or my grandfather or your grandfather, your son, my son, your daughter, my daughter, there are no exemptions for this. That we are to stand like a spiritual warrior, not only in light of social expectations, which don't want us to stand, but we're also to stand like a warrior in light of the fact that a future judgment is coming and no one will be exempt from that judgment. And he goes on to amplify on that, that death does not exempt a pagan from God's coming judgment nor a Christian from full salvation. Look at verse 6. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. I'll give it to you from the NASB. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now, this is a very important verse. You have to realize in their day, accountability after death was not widely taught in pagan religion. So the question would be this. What good is the gospel if it so restricts my sinful pleasures in this life and then the believer dies like everybody else? And that's how people are thinking. So Peter says that because people will be judged by God after death, that the gospel message both of forgiveness for the saved and judgment for the lost, even that gospel was preached to those when they were alive but who are now dead, that gospel is still efficacious for the believer. So he's saying that death does not invalidate the promised salvation to the believer, nor does it invalidate the warning to the unbeliever who is now dead. That's a very important promise to remember. See, this encourages the believer to live for Christ in this life because it's truly the right decision. The Christian dead, when they were alive, were judged by pagan standards. And judged by pagan standards, when the Christians were alive, they were found wanting. Nevertheless, judged by God's standards, they live in the eternal realm with God by the mighty work of the Spirit. Let me just show it to you exegetically for a moment. He picks up the word dead here from the previous word dead in verse 5, the living and the dead. That's referring to all humanity. So he's saying that whether you're physically alive or dead, pagans who reject the gospel and mock Christians for living out their faith will have to answer to God who judges the living and the dead. Being dead does not excuse you from the judgment of God. So he says in verse 6, for this reason, meaning in light of the coming judgment of God, the gospel which was preached to those who are now dead but heard the gospel while they were alive are going to be held accountable for it. 
Physical death exempts no one. So the gospel is effective to those who committed themselves to Christ when they heard it in this life, so that even now, when they are now dead, they live in the realm of the Spirit, judged by God's standards, not by the false human standards during this life while they were living in the realm of their human flesh. So what God is saying is that death is coming. And even though we, while we were alive, heard the gospel and we put off sins and we lived a contrary life, we were judged by the world as wanting. But now that we're dead, that gospel is still effective. And now we're being judged by God's standards and we're going to live in the realm of the Spirit. Whereas the unbelievers, now that they're dead, even though they heard the gospel while they were alive, are going to be judged by that same gospel and they will be found wanting and will suffer eternal judgment. So verse 6 is explaining the universal judgment of verse 5. So that's why I'm saying to you that we have to stand in light of the fact of future judgment. Now this is critical. We who are in Christ have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. If you're a Christian, you are going to pay a price for being a Christian. You're going to be judged by the world as wanting. You're going to be called names. You're going to be blasphemed. You're going to be slandered. But don't let that bother you. Stand for God like a warrior in spite of social expectations. And stand for God like a warrior in view of future judgment. All genuine Christians will be vindicated. And this is what gives you that internal strength to stand for the gospel, to stand for righteousness, and stand for truth. Because the gospel preached while we were all alive is not invalidated after we are dead. Because we who are saved, who are judged falsely by the false standards of the world, will be judged by God's standards. And God's standards are the standards that we've been trying to live up to. And we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which gives us our acceptance with the Lord. So to me, this is such an encouraging passage that we learn to arm ourselves with the spiritual warfare of God. And it all begins with the mind. We have to think like a warrior. And once we think like a warrior, then we determine or we will like a warrior. But we don't stop there. We actually bring it to the part of behavior. Now we have to live like a warrior. And once you live like a spiritual warrior, you're going to get opposition. So we have to stand like a warrior. And it's that standing in spite of social expectations not to stand. It's that standing in view of future judgment that will come that gives us the internal strength to do this. So it's such an encouraging passage for me and for you. I don't know what our future is going to be like. I really don't know what we're going to face. I don't even know if our churches are going to be able to survive the onslaught of persecution that's coming in America. But nevertheless, verses like this, passages like this, give me great strength and great encouragement. And I wanted to give you strength and encouragement as well. And again, I appreciate your mission, your stand as a church. I appreciate your testimony. I appreciate your outreach, your godly separation. And I thank God for the folks who have been faithful and have stuck it out here in your church with a faithful pastor. Really, you are the Lord's heroes. It's not just the pastor, though he's important and he's a key. But it really is that faithful, godly people in the church that have this mindset that strengthen the church as a whole, young and old. 
And I wanted to be an encouragement to you today with these words from our great God to encourage us to be spiritual warriors for the Lord. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you for your word. May it encourage us as it is intended to. In Jesus' name, amen.